så vette du mint och jag runt vette ett illavårsmig för Roma just efter smält av hojt och följd den alltid lastan ut sig och valon back to the beautiful toilet this is a very special episode um it's been a long time coming i'm joined today by my good friend uh matt forney a real old head you know only old heads know but uh but welcome to the podcast matt uh how are you doing i'm i'm doing wonderful i'm doing wonderful nick and uh it's a pleasure to to be here pleasure to be in the the presence of your of your podcast voice (laughs) <laughs> um, let's put on the podcast voice for this. Yeah. Yeah. This is totally affected. I don't talk like this in real life at all. <laughs> well, I don't know. I, I think that there's a, there's a spectrum. There's always, there's always that bit of, there's always that, that bit of drama when the beautiful toilet starts and he's, uh-huh. and he's talking in that voice. Yeah. I always start uh, with yeah. like this composure or whatever. Uh, so anyway, uh, that having been said, uh, I don't know how, like, you know, you have like a very long, like intellectual biography, you know, you've been in the scene for over like a decade, I, I surmise. And, uh, uh, you know, I've been aware of you for at least like six years, I think, six or seven years. Um, but how would you like uh, uh, give like a, if you were to give like a one minute synopsis of uh, who you are and uh, what your main, uh, uh, your, your intellectual and creative background is for the new heads in the audience? Uh, Christ, where do I start? <laughs> um, <clears throat> well, most people listening and 
familiar with this probably know me through Terror House Press, which you should go visit at terrorhousepress.com and terrorhousemag.com. We've been on a bit of a hiatus for a while, but we have many wonderful books you should go purchase and many uh, uh, short stories and poems on our website you should go read. We have, uh, you know, and submit, of course. Um, you should all go check that out. But before that, you know, I've been a... Uh, writer and um what uh has been uh, colloquially be, been called the distant right i guess i guess that's the best way to sum it up you know it's kind of i know it sounds a bit amorphous but you know yeah there you go i i honestly god don't know how to sum it all up better than that mm-hmm. and you've been living as an expat for about uh what like five years now seven no, six. intermittently, yeah. Um, which I find I've lost all track. I've lost all track of time. Yeah, um, and uh, what's the word? Well, I don't know. You've attracted also like a lot of notoriety at different times in your life for like different uh, endeavors and uh, uh, this or that. But uh, I don't know. I kind of wanted to get at like uh, you know the real Matt Forney, like uh, uh, the man behind the mythology, <laughs> and uh, so. I guess like one thing, you know, because I, uh, you know, I had the pleasure of visiting you in Guadalajara last uh, last December, um, and you know, you were a very hospitable host, and I was very grateful, and you know, we got to do wonderful things and go to the Mexican rodeo and uh, and whatnot. But like, I feel like, uh, 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 and of course, I met you in New York a couple times before that. But w- one thing that I uh, like, you know, I came to appreciate is like. Uh, like you're a very like sincere like uh, uh like self-deprecating like and uh like earnest person which i think you know obviously that doesn't shine through on like your some of your old writings where you're just like trolling you know being provocative or whatever um and also you're way more self-aware than people often give you credit for i feel um and you know a lot of like a, a lot of time i've spent a lot of time on this podcast kind of uh, interrogating the relationship between sincerity and irony and like how they kind of like um, the the complex ways that these uh, entities interact and that aren't necessarily as straightforward as as though to uh, suppose them as opposites in anything but like a dictionary sense. Um, so I don't know. You know, uh, uh, you've you've kind of like told this story before. You've like released a statement on Terror House about like a. a kind of like putting a soft distance between yourself and your some of your older writings or whatever but like what uh i don't know how would you say that you've uh changed over like the past like uh six or seven years um you know some of it was just aging i guess um because you know maybe my position in this is somewhat uh unique because I've been writing on the internet in some form or another my entire adult life. I've been a public figure to a certain extent my entire adult life. This is kind of defined who I am. You know, I've been writing under my real name uh, since 2012, um, over 10 years. And before that, I had a, a very popular I guess distant right blog called In Malafide. Um That was written pseudonymously. I Docs myself back in 2012 as a sort of, I guess, Cortez burning the ships kind of moment, you know, 
without getting into too much detail, I just kind of things that just were not going well for me at the moment. I decided, well, you know, I'm going to take writing seriously and succeed at it, or that's going to be it. And it's well, I've had a lot of uh, really uh, really bad moments, but it has worked out far better than I expected it would be. But you know, in your twenties, uh, you tend to be a bit more. Uh, you know, edgier and kind of impulsive people tend to be, you know, and mm-hmm. also the landscape. I know I do. The, oh yeah. Yeah. You're a very, very edgy boy. Um, <laughs> I actually, I don't know why I said boy. That's kind of, kind of sad. I'm a, no, no, no offense taken. I'm a, no, I'm, I'm a normal college Republican. Uh, I, <laughs> but I have no controversial views or opinions. And also back then, you know, like 10 years ago, that was very much, that was very much in vogue. Like, you know, all that stuff is, is incredibly cringe now, particularly, you know, the people we're still trying to do is like, ah, oh, let's trigger the SJWs or whatever. People are still yeah. trying to do that, make my, my eyes roll so far back into my skull. I look like the ex, I look like the, the, the girl from The Exorcist. Mm-hmm. Um, but Back then, it was genuinely funny and also very effective in terms of getting attention. Writing stuff that, in context, wasn't even all that offensive. You know, you mm-hmm. write something like well, uh, the case against like, females. You write like, something like the case against female self-esteem, or you know, with girls with yeah. No, your your old writing was funny. Like, uh, uh, you know, whether you know, as much as you uh, want to distance yourself from some of the more uh, radical or uh, uh, offensive. Uh, ad- outbursts of it like it was legitimately very funny and i think like one thing that that milieu kind of uh, uh equips us with like uh, uh you know it's like a part of like the process like wisdom is kind of overcoming it like getting over like this uh, uh compulsion to like uh, uh offend or trigger for its own sake but also like just like going through that kind of gives you like the ability to like not like to color outside of the lines of like what's acceptable and you know maybe if it comes from a place of uh, a sincere uh, introspection and kind of uh, uh, and like thoughtfulness, then that's like a step above just like doing it for its own sake, for the sake of pure transgression. But like the willingness to transgress is something that you know that uh, that kind of development equips us with. So yeah, I think that yeah, terror house yeah. reflects that well because you obviously don't shy away from edgy subject matter. Even still, it's not like you've gone like a. Uh, uh, it's not like you've gone native and uh, uh, you know you know, truly, like, embraced, like, the diversity, equity, and inclusion gospel, but, like, there's just, like, a kind of, uh, uh, I think there's, like, a detachment from it, you know? Like, it's not a... Yeah, yeah, I, I, yeah, I, I definitely, I definitely see that, you know, there's a value, there's a value, there's a value in, um, you know, being willing to transgress. What I'm opposed to is, like, transgressing for its, like, own sake, um, which is something I've, I've also written about uh, in relation to, say, that's something, that's a very Gen X type thing, like being edgy for the sake of being edgy, you know, you know, 20 years, you know, actually more like 30 years ago now, you know, that's how much time has passed, you know, Um, in like the 80s and 90s, it was like, ooh, Satan is awesome, ooh, you know, stuff like that, like trying to shock the, uh, you know, you know, the equivalent of Al Gore and you know, uh, focus on the family type Christians. It's like, ooh, yeah. that stuff was edgy, you know. Um, and for my generation, I guess, you know, the kind of people I was surrounded by, uh, our version of edgy was like, oh, yeah, you know, there are only two genders. That's the version <laughs> of edgy, which well, is, you know, 
It's incredible to me, like, how, uh, uh, how sensitive, like, uh, uh, Gen Xers were to, like, any, like, apparent overture of, like, censorship on their part, or, like, because, what, like, the, the Parental Resource Music Committee is just, like, their pitch was actually, like, very moderate and, like, simple. It's like, oh, yeah, you're, you can go ahead and, like, put out this CD about satanic sodomy, but if you put out this sa CD about satanic sodomy, you have to put a tiny sticker on it so parents know not to, like, uh, uh, give their kids this CD about satanic sodomy. Like, that sounds, like, so, like, moderate and reasonable compared to, like, what, like, uh, progressive uh, efforts at censorship are, which go far beyond, like, a little sticker. And so it's just weird to me, like, to see, like, the level of, like, sensationalism and, like, uh, uh, alarmism about, like, uh, uh, about that particular incident in the 80s is really uh quite shocking <laughs> gen, gen xers are i mean not all there's some there's some good ones out there they've got like some really bizarre hang-ups uh i can't claim credit for this insight so you know i'm just uh -huh. i'm just putting that out there yeah but i remember someone on twitter commenting this is like two three years ago about like some uh new show that uh tim heidecker was developing um a parody of um like uh sitcoms from like like uh, what was that show with uh tim l home improvement yeah parody of like those uh you know uh show uh sitcoms that were about like happy suburban families and this person was commenting like why did gen xers like have this obsessive hatred of like those types of shows that's like a running theme of them like all these gen xer like artists like hatred of the suburbs hatred of like the family life um it's 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 yeah, pathological with uh with toby Maguire where like it, they have to like liberate themselves from black and white by discovering masturbation yeah yeah and you'll remember in the 90s there were all those um indie movies about how every commuter town republican is secretly raping his daughter or something you know yeah. stuff like american beauty and gummo and yeah well i'll defend todd salons his movies are his movies are actually funny uh -huh. <clears throat> Like storytelling is a great movie, yeah. but like that's 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 the uh, that's the legacy of Gen X. But I'm not going to say like millennials or you know Zoomers are any better. That kind of that kind of ironic like edginess just kind of got passed down, warped, and in many ways got absolutely worse. Yeah, you're right. Like it's like not a well, it's not like a millennial or a Zoomer fixation to like. Uh, it's a general. Uh, it's a general construct like uh like the like idyllic 1950s like leave it to beaver family archetypes because i suppose like to most millennials or zoomers like that whole archetype feels very foreign it's like it wasn't even like something that was present enough to like uh, uh you know merit like uh uh you know deconstruction like more or less like most of us are from like one kind or another of broken home and uh yeah it's like it's like on twitter recently there was that uh account that posted that uh like uh, video of uh, high school in 2002 and like all these Zoomers replied to is like oh yeah you're not seeing all the gay kids who were like you know getting beaten up and lynched and all like yeah. you know everyone in that everyone in that video was like racist and I'm like I was in high school in 2002 that was not the case at all yeah. look when I was in high school like I went to a Catholic high school um, there was a gay kid who tried to bring his boyfriend to uh, the my high school prom um the principal said no because well it was a catholic high school and half of my class was in open revolt and this was in 2006 okay like this was not like this was this was a long time ago in 2006 this, 
but Zoomers seem to, a lot of Zoomers seem to think like as recently as 20 years ago, every every high school kid was like a secret homophobic Klansman. Or like an open homophobic Klansman, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's, uh, um, yeah, it's, it is interesting, like, uh, um, just how much, I don't know, like how, like, distorted our image of, like, the very recent past is, too. Yeah, it's just, it's, uh, I don't know, man. Um, it's, it's just, it's just a weird kind of generational thing. But to kind of swing it around to, you know, my own writing experience, like, to kind of, to kind of, uh, my, I, I kind of, I kind of built my career on on this sort of uh, transgression, and I mean, it was entertaining for a while, but like all things, you just kind of grow out of it. Um, and also, it's not nearly as, um, you know, even if you're like viewing it from a purely commercial and, uh, uh, you know, cynical point of view, like, mm-hmm. oh yeah, clickbait, I can do this to get attention. Uh-huh. Um, that's not really the case anymore. Uh, the internet's I mean, I, not nearly nearly as open as it used to be. I mean, uh, I've basically been a clickbait writer for like the past like a uh, year and a half. Uh. Oh, it's it's. I mean, if you're getting paid for it by somebody else, yeah, by by all means, do it. But uh, <laughs> uh-huh. um, in terms of like <clears throat> to give you to give an example of how different things were ten years ago, um, one of my one of my friends. Um, he was um, ten years ago. He was he was dating like a girl who was going to college at a certain uh, major college in the Midwest. One of my articles went really really viral around the time, and uh, people at this college were like discussing it in like the college dorm. And he was uh-huh. like going around with like his girlfriend, and he's like, uh, and he's overhearing people talking about this uh, particular article. Uh, I forget which one it was, and he and he like hears my name being dropped, and he's like, yeah, yeah, I know Matt Forty, and they're like, what the fuck? What the fuck? Yeah. Like that yeah. that sort of thing. That sort of thing did happen. Um, but now the it's internet's been, been interesting re- for me too, like getting to know you because I, you know, I'll just be like, oh hey, I was just hanging out with Matt Forney, and there's like uh, th- those who know, which is like honestly like relatively like few people because I feel like a lot of people are like newcomers to like the internet or whatever, and you've been keeping a lower profile in the last couple of years. But like those who are in the know are just like kind of both like uh, uh, puzzled and like amused and like uh, uh, you know kind of uh, um you know, there's like a certain like element of uh, uh, surprise and like novelty to it. But I guess like, like I said, like people really don't know like the real you like that's uh, I mean, I think like uh, real like terror house insiders or whatever know, like have a pretty good grasp of your personality and who you are and like what you're about. But uh, you know, a lot, a lot, especially like the chapos that like uh, only remember you from like uh, 2016 or 2017, like they, you know, they have well, no I mean, idea, like, about your, like, actual, like, literary passions or whatever. Well, I mean, Chapo is just a perfect example of that whole Gen X, like, everything is ironic mentality. I mean, they're all, like, in their 40s, I'm pretty, uh, you know, so, as far as I know. Um, uh-huh. They're in their 40s, something something awful type burnouts who, like, think uh, the same three jokes are funny. And they're also irrelevant at this point. When was the last time anybody uh, talked about uh, Chapo, period? Right. They're just sort yeah. of there. I, uh, uh, you know, I don't want to get uh, distracted by like Chapo or whatever. Like, uh, I feel like, yeah, they they occupy very little headspace for me. Um, but, um, 
But yeah, I don't know. Like, you know, I guess like a lot of people really don't seem to have a good grasp of, uh, of your real personality. Um, one thing that I found was kind of interesting because I read a, a, you know, a manuscript of your upcoming book, Sex Pest, which is um, very funny. And I feel like that title, like kind of like uh, uh, harkens, like, you know, it, it alludes to like your internet infamy from like uh, five or so years ago. Um from like the uh the return of king's days but uh, uh but yeah, of course it's like a approach from a very different angle um than say you know do the philippines it's a very uh um i mean i i was wondering like uh, as far as this uh manuscript is concerned and as far as like a lot of your recent writing is concerned you know uh, uh the the po- the poem that you published in was it misery tourism uh yes misery the, tourism that was uh, back the, in uh, august what was the name of that uh, Bruslanyuk. It's a, it's kind of a tongue twister. It's, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's Hungarian. The title of the poem, um, literally translates to English as bad girls, but a more colloquial transition might be whores or sluts. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, um, you know, that that's, it, it feels like a kind of like, a, a inversion of like your older, like persona, um, in a sense that there's like a, you know, there, there's like this kind of a, a sexual, like libertine uh, experience that's offered by like the third world, or in this case, like uh, uh, Central Europe, but like kind of like uh, backwater, relative backwater of Central Europe, and uh, uh, that there's like the promise of like this libertinism, uh, such as like in the pickup artistry days, but now it has like this like very like self-deprecating, like uh, uh, like engross kind of uh, uh, quality to it. So. I guess, like, uh, could you speak more about, like, what inspired, like, uh, this uh, unpronounceable poem and also, like, a lot of, like, the, a lot of the subject matter in a, a, a Sex Fest, I think, is very similar to this, too. Well, yeah, I'll, I'll go over the book. Um, it's been, it's been in the works a lot longer than I expected it would be. Um, but the genesis of it was that I started writing um, what would become Sex Pest back in uh, 2020 after a... Uh, <clears throat> A certain, um, well, I won't go into the details of this e-drama just because it's been so long ago that it's more or less irrelevant. But the, uh, I started writing uh, one poem that uh, didn't end up in the final manuscript but may end up in a different form in some other fashion. It was essentially about the frustration of being stuck uh, under COVID lockdown in, a, uh, in Albania, um, which was my situation at the time. Um, <clears throat> I had been, uh, um, to really simplify the story, I've been living in uh, Georgia, the country, uh, up until the end of 2019. Thought it would be a, a, I had been planning to move to Argentina, um, had to go to Armenia for a couple of months because I started Terror House Press around the same time, had to have my debit card delivered to Armenia because of the laws of Georgia. Then I decided I, before I went to Argentina, I'd do a road trip across Europe. But I started the road trip in uh, March of 2020 in Greece. It made it as far as Albania before the lockdown started. And by June of that year, I was still in Albania because even though the lockdown there had been lifted, the borders were still closed. It was a very frustrating situation. I also lost my job around that time, so it was not mm-hmm. fun. Um, and the original title of the, you know, I wrote this one poem. Um, I showed parts of it to a friend of mine. He's like, this is really good. You should keep going. Because I had attempted to write poetry beforehand. And I had uh, one poem 
um, that was previously published on Terror House back in 2018. That's uh, not very good. It was good for the time, but uh, the work I think I'm doing is much better now. Um, but my friend was like, yeah, you're getting much better at poetry. Um, and uh, this this style and what I was doing here just kind of clicked. So it's like one poem became two, two became three. Um, I was tentatively calling this uh, book uh, Anchor. Um, the title came from an article by Rush Valzade um, called The Past is an Anchor, um, in which he talked about how, like, even if you change, like, even if you, like, become a different person, like, the actions you've taken in the past are always going to weigh you down in some fashion. And at the time, um, in relation to this certain e-draw that, that had happened in the, like, the, the literary sphere, I was feeling that, like, no matter what I did with Terror House, no matter what I did, people would always be judging me uh, based on things I'd done or said, like, in the past. I was feeling very bitter about that, and I, that was kind of informing, like, what I was writing at the time. And for the next, like, you know, <clears throat> couple of years, I would, like, stop writing intimately go back to the uh, manuscript write a bit more etc um and this continued up until march of 2022 when i realized that the the manuscript wasn't really gelling because it was going in a far different direction than like the anchor theme didn't really fit because number one um i didn't really feel anymore that my past was holding me back mm -hmm. um um and number two the poems didn't really reflect the original theme. Uh, a lot of it was like the best poems in it were like all these sort of weird sexual, uh, self-deprecating uh, episodes, like the like the one you mentioned, uh, you know, Ruslan Yoke. Uh -huh. um, that was by far the best one that I had written uh, for it so far because it was. Um, it's not based on it's not based on a true story. I can't really get into the I details. I think it's terrific stuff. I know. Uh, I, I I remember uh, the first time I met you. I just like took for granted that this was like all like autobiographical, and you you know you were like no no. It's actually I mean, it's actually yeah. not. I I it's actually not. I can't really get into the details publicly, but uh -huh. um, but the idea at least is that it's something like my my uh, I guess alternate protagonist could could do the fact that people think i could do it or at least like the protagonist could do it in this i guess story i guess is a testament to how good it is um, yeah and uh i want to talk about that in more <laughs> detail too uh I, i've uh, gone to the trouble of pulling it up uh because um well first of all it, you know this is like uh the house style of misery tourism but here we have an illustration of what what i presume to be the hungarian flag although it's like too you know it's black and white so you can't even really tell but it's a tricolor flag uh um that was actually on, done by matt that was done by matt Wards, actually yeah. by uh terror house um right and we had yeah we had to you know their house style yeah is black and white uh-huh which i you know i don't know it, it's interesting because it seems like this is uh uh there's like some kind of uh reckoning with your like uh past and like your reputation and it begins with like uh, uh you know with the the allegation i don't know if any of this is true that miklos horty went to orgies and uh that's and that's it, all like you know it's 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 played up the idea is that um you know 
but it is a stereotype that uh, a historical ter- stereotype that Hungarians uh, tend to be like libidinous. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, yeah, actually... that's one thing I wanted to get at too is just like how it captures like the perversity of uh, of Hungary because you know I visited Budapest. It's one of my favorite cities I've ever been to because it's so damn weird. But like I don't know why they still have like such a ubiquity of brick and mortar porn stores. Like you know, you would think that that's a uh, uh, totally obsolete, but for some reason, like they just like have a. It's like it's just it's just like... part of the, it's just part of the culture, um, and it, it's been like this for a very long time. Um, uh-huh. In the nineteen twenties and nineteen thirties, um, fascist Italy had a entire genre of uh, like sex comedy with nudity in it, and a lot of those films were set in Hungary, mm-hmm. um, just because that was the stereotype. Like uh, you know, Hungarians, those wacky Hungarians, they're always having affairs. They're always you know. Just but it goes beyond like off. the kind of like libertinism and like what we associate with having the affairs of uh, uh, like, you know, the French, for example. But like the, it, with the Hungarian context, I feel like there's always like something like really gross about it, like something uh, sorted. Um, you know, I mean, I went into a, a sex shop when I was in Hungary. I was like uh, 19 years old or whatever. And I thought like uh, I was just kind of curious about it. And I was really like mortified by um, the ubiquity of uh, uh woman and horse porn in particular like (laughs) pull shells for like like bestiality content like and that's like i don't know i don't want to be gross but like that really uh there's something like really fucked up about that country which i love you know i love the the i love hungary but there's something really like i mean they 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 are they are descent they are descended they are descended from the steps so i mean there is something to the whole horse thing Uh uh-huh and uh But, uh, you know, you start with, like, uh, this kind of, like, uh, iconoclastic, like, litany of, uh, of, of, you know, the Hungarian politicians. And, you know, some of them are fascist, you know, so there's, like, a continuity with the kind of, like, Return of King's Days in that sense. And, you know, some of them are communists. So it's, like, you know, I feel like it's a very... I don't know. It, it really uh, well, the the, the common the commonality is that is that it's like politicians that are like beloved in like Hungarian like culture. Uh huh. Like Imre Naz was like the, the hero of the Hungarian uh, Revolution, and uh, Janos Kadar was you know the leader of uh, you know communist Hungary throughout much of the latter days of uh, the People's Republic, and is still fondly remembered you know by many older Hungarians because he was uh, you know a liberalizing leader. Mm-hmm. Like, I guess, you know, this and this kind of ties into how I interpret, like, the name of Terror House itself, which, uh, you know, is like the name of, like, a, this building in Budapest, which is, like, you know, I, I think it's a museum now, but it was, like, considered the house of terror in, like, the fascist days. And I know you've said in the past that, you know, it's just, like, a cool name, but I, I guess, like, I interpret this as suggesting, like, some kind of... Uh, uh, deconstruction like some kind of a continuity and deconstruction of like the like edgy like radical like distant right like uh uh you know uh, kind of like the 20th century uh uh icons of you know <laughs> of uh edgy politics and like uh you know and not even like in a moralistic way not in like a kind of like edgelord like antifa like oh well hitler was gay you know i'm glad mussolini was dead this is what we do to fascists but like just kind of a um I don't know, like, the, like a, you know, a paradigm shift, like, you know, kind of like iconoclasm of like these old uh, idols and, uh, and, and well, I mean, of, like, yeah, I guess, new. I guess, I guess in a sense, you know, it may have, you know, evolved in that direction. I mean, the, uh, the House of Terror was, uh, in addition to being the, uh, 
headquarters of the fascist Arrow Cross Party was also the headquarters of the uh, ABH, the Communist Secret Police, uh, mm. after the uh, World War II. So it was sort of a, you know, it was it, it had a it had a it had a, like two rather you know terrifying meanings, and it is now a museum, a rather mawkish and kind of idiotic museum. Uh-huh. But it looks cool on the street when you walk past it. Yeah. Yeah, so I guess, like, I don't know, like, do you uh, interpret, like, uh, you know, this, like, kind of 20th century, like, politi- political context as informing the work at all, or am I, like, reading too much into it? Like, um, yeah, I mean, maybe, you know, that's that's one possible interpretation, but, uh, you know, Terranus has kind of always been guided by just, like, what I personally find interesting, which to a certain extent is um, how a lot of independent presses operate like you know a small press that's operated by one person is more or less dictated by like the aesthetics of that one person but um uh when i started terror house i mean my mission was basically it was to it was to cultivate what i liked to read and what um i personally find interesting um and one thing interesting that happened when I, I started doing it was that, like, my taste kind of expanded. Like, I've become exposed to a lot of uh, writers and writing styles that I wouldn't have sought out on my own before Terror House. Um, in particular with poetry. I rarely read poetry before I started Terror House. But then we start, I started taking, uh, you know, we started taking poetry submissions. I started reading other literary magazines to see what they were doing. You know, and now I, you know started actually studying poetry not just reading it but like you know taking you know reading other poets and taking apart their work to see what they were doing and you know you know treating it like i was treating it like i was back in college and trying to work apart the nuances every line and then started writing my own poetry which i did not expect would happen at all um so that was that was one interesting side effect of of that it uh you know opened my you know eyes to a lot of uh, work i would not have uh, and a lot of styles i would not have considered uh you know just as a reader um, just to like uh, kind of like get back to uh uh, uh what's it called rosh uh what is it rosh Lanyok. um for a minute i guess like uh you know i i want to like push uh deeper into this interpretation because i feel like the the conclusion of it like seeing like the kind of like a uh, uh, hungarian nationalism like the uh you know the the guardians of like the the integrity of like the people and the ethnos um reduced to like this like a really like disgusting like uh, uh orgy and like the, the spectacle of that like i feel like it speaks to like a feeling of like you know obviously there's feelings of nostalgia there's like the beloved like hungarian politicians whose memory is being defiled by uh you know being associated with like these sordid sex acts which you know is probable being that they're hungarian but even so um and then you know there's a, a like i feel like there's the desire for something like more authentic like the desire for like a nationalism and like a, a something like muscular and uh um authentic and sincere and uh, about like this kind of uh this vein of politics and yet seeing it like presented in this way that it's like it's just like this really like a uh, sordid little uh you know it's a sordid event and uh um and like just feeling empty with it i feel like it speaks to like the feeling of abandonment by what we consider like uh, uh the the kind of established political um 
authorities and like the cultural uh, authorities itself. Does that make sense? I'm not a. I don't know if I'm expressing that's myself a, clearly, but no, I mean, it makes sense. I mean, that's an interesting read of it. Um, you know, when I read when I when I wrote that, um, it was really sort of uh, just kind of a. a sort of a goof on uh, uh, Hungarian culture and uh-huh. also sort of uh, the idealized uh, depictions many right-wingers have of Hungary, you know, because, uh, you know, Orban's always making the news as this this base political leader who's like pro-family and anti-EU and, you know, mm-hmm. he's pushing back against the tide of, of liberalism or, or whatever, which, I mean, okay, you know, there's a lot of, you know, good things to say about him and Hungary or whatever, if you're into all that, but uh, it's not really capturing the full picture. You know, mm-hmm. a lot of, a lot of, um, you know, uh, Christian conservatives would go to Budapest and would be horrified by like things like you said, like the, uh, the women and, and the horses um, yeah. and the, uh, the strip clubs and the, massage parlors everywhere but all that stuff is just a normative part of hungarian culture it's just it's these are things that exist side by side and hungarians don't see a contradiction there and there are other examples i could have put in there um there was um in 2019 in the uh, the local uh like mayor elections the mayor of gear uh one of the uh one of the smaller cities in hungary there was a scandal where he was uh, uh videotaped uh you know, having sex with whores on a, a yacht off the coast of uh, Croatia. He was a member of Fidesz, the uh, the uh, the ruling party, uh, and he won re-election by like you know like four hundred votes. Uh, but he won re-election. Um, he was later for like like a couple weeks after the election, like the party pressured him to resign. But still, it's again, it's something that the uh, the people there just kind of like. It's it's not it's that it's not a total. Um, it's it's not a big deal to them, not as big a deal to them. And then in 2020, there was like another Fidesz politician who uh, he was in, uh, I think he was in Brussels. Um, he was a member of the EU Parliament. He jumped out of a window to escape uh, because he was uh, in a gay orgy that was uh, you know flouting COVID social distancing regulations. That's uh, I mean, I, I think that these uh, the, these kind of moral scandals matter less and less as like the social moral consensus breaks down, because as things become more like polarized, like it's actually like kind of stupid to care about it at a certain point. I mean, like everyone should care, but like it's stupid to like actually like uh, let it affect you. Like, for example, you know, like Herschel Walker, like, you know, I, I think it's gross that he like may have like paid for uh, or, you know, tried to pay for abortions or whatever. But I mean, if he's just, like, going to get into office and, like, vote to, like, ban abortion or whatever, of course I'm not going to care about that, you know? Like, it's not, like, that's not my priority. My priority is kind of, like, because he's become the avatar of, like, you know, my moral position. Like, his individual actions, like, really matter, like, relatively little in, like, the scheme of things. And I think that pretty much everyone thinks like this. And, like, we all kind of opportunistically use, like, moral scandals as, like, to get a dig at our opponents or whatever but like they're not no one's really like basing their decisions off of that and it would kind of like not make sense to on a certain level if you take your moral premises seriously i guess yeah yeah i mean there's a i mean to a to a general extent i think this is always like the the whole the whole moral care the whole moral character thing has had a much uh, stronger pull in the Anglosphere than in continental Europe. Uh, there's obviously varying, you know, 
extremes in different countries but like in the u.s obviously it's always been a big deal uh much less and less now as you say the uh the, the social and moral consensus is breaking down um in a country like france famously like you know they don't really care you know uh what's his face when he was president divorced his wife and then married that uh you know model while he was president and oh know, was that people... sarkozy yeah it was Sar sarkozy yeah and nobody blinked an eye you know that would be i think that to a certain extent that would still be unthinkable if any u.s president did that um um uh and then on the extreme you have hungary where you know you can still win re-election if you're literally filmed having sex with prostitutes uh, and you're a right winger so i think uh, um you know to speak about sex pests more broadly it's interesting to me because like i mean i get shades of uh uh you know delicious tacos and like bukowski from this like these kind of like misanthropic like sex gross writers um uh i don't know uh i was curious like what your like what you would consider your formative influences as uh as a writer i mean you know i i love delicious i love delicious tacos you know i you know i've known I, well, I've never met him in person, but, uh, you know, I followed his work, I followed his work and talked to him for like a decade, you know, now, um, you know, I first encountered him through the, uh, you know, Rouge V forum in the old manosphere. And, um, you know, I've, 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 I've heard comparisons to Bukowski, but, uh, you know, it's funny. I've, I've only ever read like, you know, Bukowski's novels. I've never actually read any of his poems. Um, and, um, well, I do like his work. Um, well, I'm not going to I'm not going to attack Bukowski um, based on some of the people who lionize him. Um, the issue the issue with Bukowski is not Bukowski itself. It's that he, is that there are writers um, who will look at his lifestyle, misinterpret it, and think, ah, oh, yeah, he drank all the time. That's an excuse for me to just be drunk, be a drunk uh, loser. Um, you know, there, yeah. I've encountered Did writers that? like that. Um, no, no, I wouldn't put you in that category. No. <laughs> I know. You're you're a hard you're a hard worker, Nick. Um, oh, thank I've, you. I've known, I've 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 known I've known I've known I've known uh, people like that who like will just drink and stare at the wall and call yeah. themselves a writer. Oh yeah, um, totally. Which 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 is funny because Dukowski himself was not like that at all. Like oh. yeah, he yeah he had a reputation for being drunk, but he would sweat over his manuscripts and to make them the best they they would be. He was a very very uh, like, dedicated to his craft. It is interesting um, to me, like the uh, the preponderance of writers who are like hard alcoholics. Like it it seems to like go beyond like any like predictable correlation. Like it's not just like it goes beyond like creative people in general who are alcoholics. It's like writers in particular. But I think like the only one that really was in the habit of writing while drunk that I can think of is probably Hart Crane. Like F. Scott Fitzgerald, like at least like was seemingly like writing sober as was like Hemingway and, um, you know, but like uh, uh, Hart Crane is like the only one who who's wrote while he was drunk. And I think it shows. And I think that uh, it probably like curtails a lot of his potential, even though I like Hart Crane. Like uh, I think that there's like an uh, incoherence and like uh, the, like a lack of uh, consistency that, you know, one might expect from that. But, uh, um, I, but I, per I personally, I personally don't, um, well, I personally barely drink period just because, yeah. uh, you know, I'm at the age where, um, even, um, uh, a mild hangover will put me out for the next day. Um, plus, uh, you know, I had an alcoholic, uh, girlfriend years ago and, uh, watching her, uh, you know, 
dealing with her just kind of was a scared straight moment where you know uh cutting back on my drinking uh was uh much easier to do after that point well this is also something that uh i talked about with uh with calvin atwood who i'm i believe you're familiar with right you've uh read and yes. probably published his work before yeah 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 i met him at the um, at the terror house event actually has he been published on a terror house yet no He's a, I mean, I always say he's like my favorite contemporary writer, but, um, but yeah, you know, he, you know, he talked about this at length too, that, uh, uh, that he, uh, you know, he used to, he feels like a sense of loss over having wasted so much of his life, um, you know, under the delusion that if he could just like, if he could just, uh, work and write while hungover, that everything would be solved and, uh. No, and how no, much yeah, how much yeah, of this like most creatively fertile years were like wasted uh on that yeah i totally yeah i totally yeah i totally get that i mean i you know i i, I at least don't have to feel that regret just because uh you know i i mean i i never considered myself an alcoholic but uh you know i did but i did binge drink a lot when i was uh younger i more or less cut that out um I do still occasionally binge drink, but like it's never more than like once or twice per year. And usually when someone else is buying the drinks. So, um, but you know, like to, to answer your question, um, in terms of like, uh, you know, big influences on me, my, my, probably my favorite writer of all time is Louis Ferdinand Celine. Um, uh, oh, that checks journey, out. Yeah. Journey, journey to the end of the night, you know, uh, you know, death on, you know, the installment plan or death on credit uh, as should be the properly translated French, uh, you know, French language title, um, you know, North to North, uh, you know, Rigatoon, um, the uh, fantastic, uh, you know, Celine is the greatest writer of the 20th century. And anyone who wants to dispute that should probably, you know, explain to me why almost every other great novelist you know, was inspired by him, um, huh. either like, openly acknowledging it or just, you know, surreptitiously ripping him off. You know, Bukowski, you know, Hwellbeck, obviously. Hwellbeck's well, another influence on me. You know, you can't. Oh, you know. I love him. I love him. But also, you know, there's something about Hwellbeck, and I think I've talked about this on the show before, but like, for you know, everyone has this image of him as like this like French misanthrope that just like loves to, uh, uh, you know, relish in cynicism or whatever. But I've really stricken by like how... Um, how humane his writing is in a lot of ways in particular like towards like female characters like i'm really uh amazed by how vividly and like empathetically he kind of like captures their um motivations and their interiority and he doesn't shy away from like the sordidness of it all but there's always like a lot of empathy and like a surprisingly like tender heart at the core of it and i i mean i get that with you too um probably like more so in person than in your writing um that was actually something i wanted to ask about too like uh, uh you know how you view like the relation of your personality to like your writing because i guess you know i view you as like someone that's uh very introspective like uh, uh you know looking for um you know you're, you're like a spiritual seeker of sorts not like in the religious sense but kind of just uh like looking for like the next horizon of uh you know self-betterment and like wisdom and also uh uh you know uh you know very uh sincere and grateful of your friendships and such so like how do you uh, uh you know do you agree with that per characterization i suppose and like do you see that like reflected in your current writing or i mean i'd say that's i say that's more or less accurate um though um 
like, well, I, I, I'd specify to this effect. Um, I didn't really finish uh, explaining earlier, like, oh, uh, sorry, my why, point. why the uh, book, the the book transitioned from being called Anchor to Sex Pest. Um, some things happened to me about, uh, you know, a year ago that sort of, you know, allowed me to click and made me realize what the book was missing and why I had difficulty, you know, even kind of working on it. Like, I realized what was unifying it was, uh, you know, sort of like the, the sexual escapades. And what separated uh, Ruslanyuk uh, from the rest of the poems was that it was, it had that sort of personal touch. Even though, as I said, it's not like an auto-fictive episode, it feels like one. Uh, it, yeah. could, it, it could be one. It, it had a sort of personal touch, whereas the other poems were very impersonal. I was not really kind of like injecting myself into it. So I sort of scrapped everything else and just started from scratch. Um, the title Sex Pass came from that because I felt that just sort of tied everything in together. Um, I did reuse some of the other poem, uh, some of the poems from the uh, previous uh, uh the previous draft i'm in the process now of rewriting to kind of get get rid of those trim those up but about i'd say maybe about two-thirds of the book is entirely new and came out of that new uh creative process um but the thing is uh with my with uh the writing process that i've developed um i start from a auto fictive base um because I realized that was the spark that was missing. Um, my work tends to suffer if I'm not being uh, personal. I have to sort of inject myself either in terms of writing about something that's happened or just writing from like a, like a personal feeling or a personal sentiment. Um, if I'm just writing about something else that's not related, um, it, it lacks that personal spark. But that's like a first draft type of thing. When I'm redrafting, I tend to move it away from the auto-fictional base, more or less, um, just to kind of, like, not to, to, to retain the core of, like, authenticity, but to, like, change details and whatnot, to sort of, I guess, universalize it. Because I don't want it to turn into, like, a navel-gazing thing where I'm just writing about my feelings or just restating things that happened, you know, mm -hmm. which I find inherently narcissistic, you know, mm -hmm. it's... Um, you don't want to be like a memoirist like that's mm -hmm. that's just more plus the advantage of auto fiction or fiction in general is that though you can compress like the boring parts you know you can make shit up when stuff is not that interesting you know you can elongate the parts that are hilarious um that that's that's my general writing process um start from an auto fictive base and then afterwards you know fill in the gaps with uh, stuff to make it more interesting mm -hmm. Like, I generally, like, have, like, a pretty tough time uh, appreciating literature that I feel like is um, singularly cynical, you know, uh, that doesn't have, uh, that doesn't, uh, like, create rooms for some something redemptive or, like, hopeful, you know, not regardless of, like, how gross or, like, uh, depressing or sordid it may be, like, I guess, like, I always want, like, that pocket of, um, of redemption, and I feel like if I'm left with something that I feel like is, uh, um, you know, nakedly cynical, even if like the, the, like the, uh, even if like the redemption, the redemptive aspect of it is just, uh, empathy, even if it's just like a kind of like finding like, uh, solace and like being able to like, uh, empathize with the feelings of another person. But uh, I don't know. Do you share that perspective or do you feel like there is like more, uh, uh there's more, 
value than I'm giving credit for in like purely like a, a cynical art. I think cynicism has its place, but like you said, it can get tiresome after a while. It also depends on the perspective of the uh, the person who's engaging in the cynicism. I mean, uh, I can understand cynicism, cynicism if it's coming from someone who is, you know, I guess down on their luck. Um, but cynicism coming from someone who is like well off um, kind of grates on my nerves. Um, yeah. You know? Like if you're if you're if you're coming from like this bitter cynical position and you're like on a trust fund, um, I'm not going to take you seriously at no. all. Like something like that. Uh, no, that's 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 very difficult to to swallow. Um, if someone if someone starts out from a cynical perspective and they're just you know in a bad position in life and they're writing authentically about, you know, that station in life, like that can, that can produce something very, very, you know, authentic. Like one of, one of my favorite writers is uh, John Dolan. And uh, mm -hmm. he wrote a uh, novel about 20 years ago called uh, Pleasant Hell. That's uh, very fantastic. It, it, basically it's a very cynical auto fictive novel um, based on his, uh, you know, teenage and uh, early college years growing up in the suburbs of San Francisco, uh, basically as a proto-incel, um, mm -hmm. you know, getting, uh, you know, mocked at, uh, mocked in high school, you know, his failed attempts to get laid with like this lesbian, uh, working at a junkyard with a, you know, beat up old dog, um, wearing these uh, boots that uh, didn't fit him properly. So like he's, you know, they're, he's bleeding all over the place and getting pus-infected wounds. You know, at one point he develops an aversion to showering, so like, you know, he's going around and trying to use like eucalyptus uh, scented vapor rub to cover up the fact that he smells like a homeless person. Um, it's it's very funny and very cynical, um, and it works because he's writing about a period in his life where he was, and he, and he's also very self-deprecating about it. Like he's not blaming the world for the fact that he was a, you know, a socially retarded loser um mm -hmm. like um and it works it works because it's, uh, because he's approaching it from that very self-deprecating and brutally honest angle mm -hmm. um <clears throat> someone who was you know coming from the you know someone who wrote about a protagonist like that but they were like you know really rich and getting laid all the time wouldn't work it wouldn't work hmm. at all like, I would kind of, uh, I don't know, my instinct is that, like, someone can be very bad off and, like, just, like, have, like, material means or whatever, or, like, have, like, a great life on paper. And, like, and actually that despair can be even greater than, uh, uh, you know, living in destitution. You know, one of my favorite novels that I've read in the last few years has been Hunger by Knut Hampson. And, like, um, the thing that I really related to is just, like, uh, how, like, when you really are, like, uh, uh, scraping the bottom of the barrel in terms of money or whatever, like, you can get, like, this, like, ecstatic euphoria just from like simple relief and then you get like a kind of like manic attitude and just like squander like every good thing by you know because of your scarcity mindset um does that make sense uh yeah i can i can understand that and but, uh, Hunger, uh, then then you know hampson is a great author i, I would also mm -hmm. recommend him mm -hmm. yeah really like uh, uh i felt like uh i i felt uh you know, recognized in that novel like a few years ago when things were pretty rough. That's, uh, uh, you know, I, I felt like I related a lot to those situations and like those attitudes. Of course, I never like had it that bad or anything. But, uh, um, you know, during my un unemployment death spiral around the time that I started this podcast, actually. Um, so it is just like, a, a, I don't know, like I wouldn't say that 
like uh, uh, one's material means necessarily reflect like how well off they are um, in terms of like uh, lifestyle or you know mental soundness of mind. Well, I mean, there are certain ways to go about it. Um, I can't claim credit for this insight, but there was a writer named uh, Ramon Glazov who discussed this about ten years ago. There's a a lot of um, there. A lot of like these type of confessional poor little rich boy type memoirs or novels like uh, Less Than Zero or uh, what was it, Requiem for a Dream, uh, they all follow the – or um, who was that one guy who faked his memoir? Uh, James Fry. They all follow the structure laid out in uh, St. Augustine's uh, Confessions um, mm-hmm. where, you know, you know, Augustine is, you know, beating himself up over every sinful thing he's ever done. Mm-hmm. Um Except there's one crucial difference um, that causes all of these books to fall flat. The reason Augustine is beating himself up over his sins is not in and of themselves. It's because he's afraid of going to hell. Uh Like, none of these people, like, you know, like Selby, um, Pride, well, I think he whatever. also just like uh, uh, loves the good for its own sake, and like recognizes like beating himself up is a kind of uh, part of like a, a part of like the process of like self betterment. It's like uh, reckoning with like the ugliness that you put out in order to inoculate yourself against doing it again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But if you transplant that to a secular context, if you're not, if you're not, you know, if you're not beating your, if you're beating yourself up over your, your supposed sins, but you don't believe in God and you're not worried about going to hell, yeah. it doesn't work. Yeah. You know, you, you know, you, well, right. You, because you, like I, these people like lack moral vision, like, and I think that it's really hard to like, I think it's pretty much impossible to like, uh, uh, create any kind of great art without some kind of moral vision, however, uh, limited or, you know, incoherent it may be. Um, I think that like lacking, that kind of perspective really makes it nigh impossible to create anything of value. Yeah, it's like you you read you, you read something like you read something like you know James Fry, and it's like oh you know I was a terrible person, I did all these drugs, I you know I you know I had sex with all these women. It's like well, uh, and you did all these drugs and had sex with all these women. Sounds like you had a hell of a time, man. Yeah, I mean like you know it, I, I, these people. By and large, I gather like uh, I don't know James Fry, but uh, I you know these pe- I feel like by and large these people don't even really believe in sin or evil, um, and that doesn't necessarily mean that they can't be the avatar of uh, you know that they can't write about it in a persuasive way because sometimes a lot of times people don't even know why their writing's good you know <laughs> like uh, if it is legitimately good a lot of times I feel like the author is actually kind of uh, uh, clueless uh, as to what they've created. Um, <laughs> And like not necessarily as lucid um, about the insight that they've actually generated. Um, uh, yeah, Fry was a um, he was he's a writer who uh, back in the, the early two thousands he wrote a memoir called he wrote two memoirs called A Million Little Pieces and My Friend Leonard about oh uh, I've heard of that, his experience yeah, yeah in uh, in uh, you know rehab after being a drug addict and it was revealed that he you know made everything up basically more than made up um he according to john dolan he plagiarized the details of both of those books from a novelist called eddie little who's a really good novelist by the way uh and it's an influence on me i'd recommend checking out his novels uh another day in paradise and uh, steel toes uh but yeah this was all the way back in uh he got exposed in uh 2005 i believe mm-hmm it makes sense. I, um, yeah, I guess like, I don't, 
I don't think someone that doesn't profess a belief in evil or in like morality or whatever, like necessarily can't like uh, speak on the subject perhaps unwittingly because I feel like we have like this nature that uh, uh, draws us toward like uh, uh, you know moral uh, introspection even if uh, even if we consciously reject it so, but um but yeah it is kind of hard to stomach coming from you know it, it, like th th this like incoherence about about the subject I suppose well, plus when they straight up lie about like important facts, like Fry in his memoir claimed like he had been like addicted to glue, which is hilarious because uh, that was the detail he stole from from Little's book, uh, Steel Toes. But the thing is, like Little was only doing glue in prison. The right. only reason prisoners do glue is because they can't get access to anything good. Like uh -huh. it's it's like if you're going it's to like lie the to me, of the barrel. Yeah. Like, if you're going to lie to me, at least lie convincingly, dude. Like, yeah, like yeah. invent a convincing lie, an interesting lie. Don't lie to me and, like, don't invent some bullshit and expect me to buy it. Uh-huh. And don't be, like, purely derivative in your lies of, uh, of like, other superior writers. I think, uh, I forget who it was that said this, but, like, the worst sin that a movie can commit is to remind you of a better movie. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. I, I, I... I, I I don't remember where that uh, pithy kind of um, observation comes from, but I feel like that's also applicable in writing. Yeah, it's like, uh, you know, it, there's, a, there's a similar quote. It's like, you know, a, a good thief tries not to get caught. A great thief doesn't care about getting caught because he makes the stolen goods his own. Uh-huh. Huh. Yeah, yeah. But, yeah. Uh... <laughs> How do you feel like your uh, moral perspective has changed since you've been in the public eye? Like, uh, uh, like, what do you what do you believe in? Like, broadly speaking, I know that's like a very uh, general question, but like, what would you say are your animating like uh, um, ideals or principles? I believe in nothing, Nicholas. Nothing. <laughs> kidding, kidding, kidding. Uh -huh. um, also a very also a very dated you're like reference. you're um, like making I, like you're making like 10 funny faces no i i catch that reference i appreciate the hell out of it i uh, uh i could have i could have come up with something more current but <clears throat> you don't have your camera on this is an audio only podcast so i'm nobody yeah uh, i look like i look like shit that's why i didn't turn the camera on uh but anyway um i don't know i i guess i'm well if i've well, for starters, I'm kind of tuned out of like the whole politics thing, just because um, I don't know. Roughly about like a year, year and a half ago, I just stopped caring. Mm -hmm. um, I think it was around the time. Actually, I can pinpoint around the time I just stopped caring. It was around the time the Ukraine war started, and mm -hmm. it became visibly obvious that a ton of the stuff on both sides was just straight up made up bullshit. Um, like. Uh, it, it really felt to me like uh, we were seeing Baudrillard's, uh, and I'm sure I mispronounced his name. Um, uh, your listeners can rake me over the coals for that. But uh, it really felt like his book, The Gulf War, did not take place, but amplified out to a massive scale uh -huh. where everything was just being constructed on the Internet for a narrative for us to follow. Mm -hmm. um, it, was, it was making my head hurt. Um, and then... It kind of goes back to what I was discussing earlier with how much uh, you know the internet is controlled and it makes uh, the kind of clickbait I used to engage in more or less impossible. Um, mm -hmm. The flow of information that gets out onto the internet um, 
it's so tightly controlled to the point where um to a certain extent uh we have no real way to determine what is true and what is false anymore and then you have ai being thrown into the mix with like uh, you know back in january there was that one everyone was going uh you know apeshit with that one uh, company that allows you to make a uh I, I don't know if that's still around anymore. It allows you to make a deep fake of anyone's voice by just adding yeah. in a few video clips. Um, you know, it's such a such a uh, hackneyed observation at this point. But we're in a post-truth society um, where more or less anything can happen. And I, around this time, I just kind of start checking out, like. I stopped really commenting on all this stuff because um, I didn't have anything really to say about it. Well, if um, I can uh, interrupt a little bit, I feel like what my my question is a little broader. Like I, I you know, I aspire to be resolutely like post political too. Like I'm not really a. Uh, I'm not anyone's like a, a sycophant as far as like elections are concerned or whatever. Like I'm very uh, jaded about like the potential of like politics by traditional means. Like uh, you know, and I think that uh, you know, I mean, whatever. Like there's a. You know, people can do that. I, I don't want to. I don't even want to like speak on it really, like uh, in such absolute terms. But I mean, in terms of like, I don't know, like in terms of like the individual moral, like spiritual level, like what a uh, how would what would you say are your animating like uh, beliefs or um, principles, like and values? Uh, I don't know. I'm trying not to. I try not to hurt other people or you know feud with them or cause problems, and I kind of hope they extend me the same courtesy i don't know i just try to you know i try to be a good person i mean this yeah. is this again kind of comes out of like the whole writing process for sex pest as well mm-hmm. i i've more or less dialed down my internet presence um because i went through a period of soul searching and realized that uh you know um the way i've been behaving on the internet for years was uh, feeding back into how i treated other people um and i didn't really like that uh mm-hmm. So I kind of ratcheted that back as well. I mean, my simple rule now is just kind of, you know, treat me with respect. I'll treat you with respect. You know, if there's people I don't like, you know, I just ignore them. Um, and, uh, you know, don't, don't stay off my, stay, stay off my yard and, you know, I'll stay out of yours. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's really how it comes down, to, comes down to, I mean, if, if that sounds too simplistic, you know, you know, Maybe it is, but that's just how I try to live my life. That makes sense to me. Um, I guess, uh, uh, you know, to change subjects a little bit, you know, you've been you've been in Mexico for over two years now, right? Yeah. And uh, that's about as long as you've been settled anywhere since you started uh, as an expat, right? It's longer, like the longest I've been anywhere in and, one place. Uh, and you seem like pretty uh, content with it, more or less, like on an indefinite basis, from what I gather. Um, how would you say that, like this time, has uh, uh, shaped you um, as you know, as far as like living in this cultural milieu in particular, and uh, kind of like being? Um... Well, I've become incredibly intolerant of snow and cold weather. Um... Oh, I always have been, but you know, I just have to tough it out, I suppose, because I live in New York. <laughs> But I don't know. I mean, I, you know, I ended up in Mexico because I mentioned earlier in the show, my original plan was to move to Argentina, but, uh, you know, COVID, you know, 
put the kibosh on that more or less permanently, um, both because of the, my lost job and the fact that Argentina kept its borders closed for until I think the end of 2021. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, a friend of mine who uh, Nick uh, met, met when he was uh, visiting um, convinced me to uh, move here at the end of 2020 um, because Mexico uh, was one of the few countries in the world at the time that hadn't closed its borders and wasn't even requiring PCR tests. And his argument was like, well, Mexico is everything Argentina has, but like doesn't have a revolution every other year. Yeah. Uh, so I was more or less kind of sold at that point. I was living in Bosnia uh, and was kind of fed up. I was very fed up with the whole uh, living in Airbnb is going from country to country type deal. So, you know, and I had just gotten a new job. So uh, next paycheck, uh, I was on the, uh, I was on the plane. Uh, Mexico. I like um, it's, there might be better places um, based on your individual personality, but for me, you know, it's a very relaxed place. Um, well, I'm very partial nice. to it. And honestly, like uh, uh, before going like last, uh, last December, I really like never thought about Mexico in my life. You know, I mean, of course, like I've always been aware of it, but I never really gave it much consideration, but I was very charmed upon visiting, um, especially like, uh, I don't know, like I, it really is like a, a vibrant and I didn't realize like just how much like, how like there seemed to be like such a unique like high culture and um i don't know it's it's a wonderful place and like uh guadalajara you know i feel like your area it's a little bit it's actually like very normal to me like it kind of reminds me of like delaware or or, like mount rose pennsylvania it's just like it because because of all like the car dealerships and like the big like like the big freeways with like restaurants on the sides of it or whatever but uh um but you know it's, like not, it's not. It's not. It's not. It's not full of. It's not full of. Uh, it's not full of women in shawls offering tamales. Yeah, it's hardly a fiesta, uh, you know. But it, it does have like a. It, it has like a, a certain charm to it as well, I suppose. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, I love Tlaquepaque. Um Now, I mean, I you know, I mean, it, it, it's it's ideal for my it's ideal for my situation just because uh, you know, like I said, I like the lifestyle, the weather, you know, the people in general. Uh, it's easy to live here long term. That's another advantage. Uh, that's something people don't uh, really take into consideration who are considering expatriating. Um, how easy it is to live in a country uh, long term. Uh, you can't really do that in Asia, particularly in say, you know, Thailand was uh, you know the stereotypical destination for a lot of digital nomads. Thailand is making it very very difficult to stay long term. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Asia in general is a very difficult place to stay long term. Uh, Europe, um, it's a little easier, but still uh, pretty difficult. Uh, most Latin American countries, very easy. Um, in Mexico, uh, generally, you just need to prove that you have sufficient enough income to support yourself, and you're good. And you're good. Um, uh, really, I mean. For, you know, members of the audience who are considering moving abroad, Mexico may not be the best place for you based on your personality. I mean, Mm -hmm. you know, I would recommend visiting first before you actually, you know, take the plunge. Um, But I happen to, I happen to really like it. Plus the advantage of it being close to the U.S. means that I can actually visit more often compared Mm -hmm. to, you know, when I was stuck on the other side of the Atlantic and uh, visiting until a minimum 10-hour plane ride. Mm -hmm. So I, uh, I guess like, uh, um, 
I wonder, I, I'm sure we've talked about this before, but I wonder, like, what is it exactly that you went looking for in becoming an expat? And what's, like, kept you, um, you know, kind of uh, tumbling around, uh, you know, around the third world ever since? Well, I mean, um, back in 2016, like, I was living in Chicago, and, like, uh, during that year, I determined I had to move out because I was getting sick of that city. Um mm-hmm. And at the time, I was uh, writing, uh, doing a lot of writing for a website called Write On, which was run by uh, Arctos, the uh, mm-hmm. the uh, distant publisher. And uh, <clears throat> one of the people who worked for Arctos um, was uh, based in Budapest at the time and uh, sort of slowly convinced me to kind of move there. Uh, and... Uh, that was uh, that was kind of the linchpin for it, uh, for me. Um, just kind of I knew people there, um, and also I wanted to move out of Chicago, knowing people in Budapest, and also was like I'd never been to Europe before, so you know might as well take the plunge now. Um, so I lived in Hungary for about a year and a half. Um, my original plan from there, I, I moved out of Hungary because I was getting sick of um, how I was getting taken over by British stag partiers and foreigners in general. Um, and also because a lot of my friends were moving out. So it was, I had less of a, of a kind of an anchor keeping me there. Mm-hmm. My original plan was to uh, try and get an English teaching job in Ukraine. That didn't work out. Uh, so I ended up moving to Georgia instead uh, just because it was a uh, country that was off the beaten track. Um, so I stayed in Georgia for about a year and a half. And then, as I mentioned, there was my, you know, disastrous uh, COVID extended uh, road trip across uh, Southeastern Europe. Uh-huh. So, uh, like, I guess, I don't know. It's interesting because you put yourself in this position where you're kind of uh, deracinated. You're, you know, an eternal, like outsider to one degree or another. And I guess, like, do you have, like, a mind towards, like, uh, you know, what you're building or, like, what your, like, uh, you know, intentions are for life in the longer term, um, being in this position? Um, in- well, I mean, uh, with Hungary, it was, um, you know, the big draw of it for me was, uh, you know, going to Europe for the first time and also having, like, a social circle already there. Uh, mm-hmm. I I think with the second element, like, if the second element had been in place, I probably, I almost certainly wouldn't have done it. Um, but um, I think I, I've kept it up in part because um, I like the experience of uh, some of these countries. I like the lower cost of living. I'll just be straight up in it. Oh, you know, yeah, absolutely. that part, you know. it's um, It's been nice not, you know, you know, you know, Mexico is a bit more expensive than some of these other countries, but it's still much cheaper than the U.S. Um, uh, I like, uh, and I I like the uh, you know the experience of living in different cultures as uh, you know as uh, kind of a generic as that sounds. Um, uh, and I like being uh, to a certain extent distant from uh, American culture. Um, and I think I think to a certain I, the, the one the one I guess maybe tragic is too strong a word, but uh, you know unfortunate element is I have distanced myself from American culture to a certain extent to the point where I don't really understand it fully anymore. Um, last year was the first year I uh, had come back to the U.S. since 2017, um, mm-hmm. just because uh, I had been planning to visit uh, my parents in 2020 when I was coming back to our, coming when I was 
on the way back to uh, to Argentina, but then COVID got in the way, and you know, and in 2021, a bunch of other things got in the way. So 2022 was for the first time I could come back to the states, and so I, a lot of things had changed. Obviously, COVID really you know put a number on everything, uh-huh. but there were just a lot of cultural changes um, compared to 2017 um, where everything uh, feel, felt particularly alien. And I was comparing this on a one-to-one basis because I did go like all over the country, but like the last place, the, the last place um, I spent the, I was in the U S before leaving was New York city. I, I flew out of there to, uh, to Budapest. Um, and I went back to New York, obviously a bunch of times in the, um, in uh, 2022 and everyone there was much more hostile. It was much emptier. Um, I think our mutual friend Scott mentioned that COVID had something to do with that. Uh Um, People were just in general, a lot more closed off. It was just, it it was weirdly dead and alien feeling, you know, Uh, just, it was, and it's just something I kind of accepted that, uh, you know, that uh, American culture has kind of left me by, or this might just also be the aging process because I'm going to be turning 35 next year. You know, I have to kind of accept that, uh, you know, I'm not cool anymore. I'm not oh, cool anymore, no, Nick. I'm cool. all. You'll always be cool, Matt Forney. <laughs> it's a. Uh, um, I, I I'm guess, an like, old I, man. I'm very uh, sympathetic to a lot of this, and I think that you know what you're alluding to implicitly is that like much of the world outside of America, like America is like ground zero for a lot of like the cultural transformations and for a lot of the cultural entropy that's you know leaving everyone deracinated from like uh, uh, things that feel like unique and like uh, uh, meaningful. And so like because like the rest of the world kind of operates on a lag, um, you know, there's always going to be some appeal to like uh, uh, it, to uh, living among that and you feel like you know you're not like in this constant like a uh, uh, culture war where you know the things that you just took for granted that you grew up with and feel like are normal or under siege but um i don't know i've thought about you know i i think that a lot of people would say that that's like uh, uh that there's something morally defective about uh not feeling like that attachment to your um the place that you come from you know like the um you know in ancient rome for example it was considered like a disgrace worse than it was considered a capital punishment to uh be exiled to like never be able to return to your homeland because it's it was understood that like if you were um an upstanding like roman citizen that and a gentleman that you would uh have like such a love for your you know for the place that you came from that you would rather die than uh you know be separated from that land um which isn't something that i relate to at all you know i feel like i've always been kind of a uh, the prodigal son and uh and you know i really feel like uh you know where i came from in particular and like this on the local scale has relatively little to offer me and i don't you know um and like america in general like uh, uh i don't know i'm very drawn to like uh the expat lifestyle but i guess uh you know there i i understand the critique that uh that you're not you know you're not meant to live like this like you're meant to like fight for the betterment of uh uh you know where you came from i don't know do you understand what i'm getting at yeah 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 i mean that's something that's something that's um it didn't really go into sex fast just because the focus of sex past has a well, it's a very specific focus as you can see in the uh-huh. title it right. was more focused on my relationships with women and whatnot but uh i have another writing project uh you know that kind of uh you know is a uh, a novel that uh 
is sort of a continuation of uh, themes that developed out of Sex Pest. And one of the things I went through in the self-reflection process that, like, I've always been kind of moving around um, mm -hmm. in my life. Like, even before I became an expat, like, uh, I was always moving around the country uh, from place to place. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I grew up in uh, upstate New York and Syracuse. Um, and as an adult, um, like the longest I've lived in any one place was uh, when I lived in uh, Albany for about two and a half years. Um, I lived in Chicago for like a year and a half. You know, I lived in Portland, Oregon for a while. I lived in North Dakota for a while. Um, and that's not normal behavior. You know, that's, that's uh, you know, it's, it's, it's very unusual for anyone to, you know, move around that much. And I was trying to understand why I didn't really have an attachment to, uh, you know, I mean, you know, moving abroad will very much remind you of uh, how American you are as you, you know, uh, become, as you hit head first into how differently people do things, you know, I, experienced that uh, immediately when I, in my first real foreign experience, which was the Philippines many years ago. Uh -huh. um, you know, you're not, you, you may not necessarily become like a rah-rah, you know, you know, waving the flag type American, but you're going to be consciously reminded of, uh, you know, it's that, you know, that whole metaphor about how fish don't realize they're in water until you take them. Yeah, out. yeah. Uh, but, um, you know, but at the same time, like, I don't feel any particular attachment to New York or my hometown, and I don't have any interest in living there. I mean, my hometown's, I, I, I'm, my hometown's a shit. My hometown's a shithole. Like, yeah. like, with, like, a 35% unemployment rate and no economic activity whatsoever. Like, everyone I knew from, like, you know, my age who, like, grew up there moved the hell out as soon as I could. I was no, you know, aberration. Uh who would want to live in some decaying rust belt town full of meth addicts? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, uh, well, you know, my, uh, my hometown is actually, uh, uh, do you know, like the, the grunge band live? Uh, vaguely. They, uh, they come from my hometown and, you know, they had like, uh, what, like probably like, they had like a very, uh, they had had one album that did really well called throwing copper. Um, and on that album, there, there's a song about my hometown called Shit Town, which hasn't been my experience at all. I feel like it's just like a normal town, like they're being like melodramatic about it. But it is. Um, <laughs> I don't know. It's just a, um, I get that. I also think like there is like something, you know, my brother has always been very rooted. He's always been someone that he um, feels very anchored to the land that he comes from. He doesn't like traveling that much. He's, even though he's good at it, but like it just like doesn't spark joy for him, um, and he's like a true like patriot in every sense of the word. Like you know he uh, really places a high value on like representing where he comes from and being uh, loyal to that. You, whereas I've always been like the more mercurial kind of like uh, personality. Um, granted, I haven't even lived in that many different places, all things considered. You know, I spent a year in Italy, and then the rest of the time in my adult life, I've been in New York. So it's not like. A, it's, I, you know, it's not like I'm even like you at all, but like, you know, my family seems to think of me that way as though I'm like this like crazy, like a uh, mercurial expat that, that, you know, there's like this, uh, uh, there's a lot of disdain on like the right wing for the archetype of the rootless cosmopolitan, which I think is an instinct that, uh, you know, that, that we have for good reason. But, you know, it, it is like a paradox when you feel like it legitimately like, uh, you know, 
being anything but that doesn't really speak to you and you can't like live sincerely um in the milieu that you're kind of accustomed to and then you look at your hometown and you see like uh you know meth and you know the um the ashes of western civilization and you know empty factories like urban wastelands whatever like um like i don't really know what we're supposed to do with that well, yeah, I'm, I'm not gonna... natural. Like, you know, people from since times immemorial have like sought out like greener pastures. You know, we're descended from the Indo-European like Koryos that, you know, left behind everything they knew to sit on horseback and like rape villages and stuff. And that, uh, you know, I'm against like raping villages for what it's worth. Uh, I totally disavow that. But like the, the you know. I guess, like, the spirit of patriotism and the spirit of uh, novelty and adventure are things that, uh, you know, we have both instincts for a reason. And, uh, you know, I've talked to uh, my friend William Wheelwright, who's uh, a farmer, and he's been on the podcast, and he kind of spoke about, like, uh, this feeling of adventure of, like, going deeper into, like, where you are rather than, like, pursuing, like, a breadth of knowledge, you know, um, a breadth of experience of the world. Um, we talked a little bit about... Odysseus in uh, uh, in Dante's Inferno and he's like cast into hell and he's like judged to be one of the bad counselors or one of the evil counselors but he all he talks about is like his adventures which suggests as though like this pursuit of like worldly experience is kind of a sinful inclination in itself but I don't know I'm not uh, I, I'm not trying to put you on the spot or say that you're being a degenerate or anything by your lifestyle in fact like I'm very attracted to it I just wonder you know I wonder about this for myself um, if I'm insufficiently like a uh, uh, patriotic or like uh, uh loyal to the land that i come from i don't know man i mean i mean my my view is that i'm just kind of trying to do what's best for myself i mean mm -hmm. like not to like some like extreme selfish whatever but uh you know i it, it the reality is that people in our position we don't have exactly the luxury of uh you know be doing what our fathers or our grandfathers did you know it would have been nice to you know stay in my hometown and you know uh do whatever but uh you know we didn't have the choice of getting a the equivalent of a fifty thousand dollar you know job at the factory stamping widgets or whatever uh you know uh i would have liked that option but it wasn't presented it wasn't presented to me um mm -hmm. you know we have to we have to kind of do what's best what's best for for us um and in my particular case you know i mean i've kind of i've kind of accepted that uh you know I, i'm just out of, i'm just out of the mainstream i mean i've been interviewed before about uh you know the whole the whole expat thing and i kind of have give mixed advice like uh you know if you've got like a good job or you know a family or maybe that's sort of anchoring you to the u.s i wouldn't advise moving out it's generally something i would recommend only for like you know people who are single and even then i would recommend you know visiting the country beforehand that you're interested in like to just kind of acclimate yourself before before you do it like i would not recommend like selling everything you own and then immediately doing it because you might end up hating it um mm -hmm. there was actually one guy i knew um who he actually moved to budapest not long after i did he got he claimed to have gotten a job teaching english but i think it was through some shady firm because they didn't even arrange like a visa beforehand and um and uh so he was there on a tourist visa and he wasn't even working 
And then after like less than a week, he went home. And I was like, wait, what the, what the hell, what the hell's going on here? Like, dude, you sounds like you got scammed. Uh, they should have given you a work visa before you showed up. Yeah. Um, uh, so yeah, you know, watch out for stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess like another thing, uh, uh, that kind of crossed my mind is just, uh, um, if you could speak on, I don't know. I feel like I've talked a lot on this podcast about like the feeling of solidarity that comes from like finding your community. And even like, you know, with, uh, uh, I, I don't want to be like melodramatic about this, but, uh, uh, with like kind of feeling persecuted in one way or another, like feeling as though, um, you're, uh, under, you're under attack for, you know, for your views or not even maybe for your views, but just for your sense of, values, um, and kind of how, uh, but like how like the friends that you make from that kind of context really turn out to be like very uh, uh, solid and uh, long lasting and impressive. Has that been your experience? Um, I guess, I guess, in a you know, to a certain extent. Um, I mean, I, I mean, my views have changed to a certain extent over the years. I mean, like anyone else, you know, I'm going to admit, like, well, like a rational person. Like, there are obviously irrational people who will never change their views in the face of evidence. I mean, I'm willing to admit when I've been wrong in the past and change my views. But at the same time, you know, a friend is a friend. Uh, you know, Bronze Age Pervert said, uh, you know, I think it was on the third episode of Caribbean, Rhythm, Caribbean Rhythms, um, you should always choose your friends based on lo- based on loyalty above all else, not political uh, pl- political persuasions, um, because um, personal character matters more than politics. And I've seen this again and again. Um, this is what alienated me from the alt right and uh, you know distant politics in general. I'd see people you know forming uh, relationships based primarily on political agreement and it always devolves into mutual recriminations. I mean, how many times have we seen uh, dissonant movements collapse over petty political political disputes? No, it's really dispiriting to me too, that people like go scorched earth on people that like, they have like a more or less like 95% affinity to about like, you know, not just like issues, but like I said, like I'm not even talking about like political issues in terms of like how many immigrants should we have, but just in terms of like the disposition of like, this is, you know, my particular approach to like, you know, uh, life and language and, uh, um, you know, and art and, you know, these are like my core values, you know, people that will go scorched earth over like some like fine point of, you know, like over some really petty, uh, disagreement with someone that should by all means be a fellow traveler. Um, well, that's because, well, that's because that's been, honestly, so damn annoying to like navigate that and like constantly like have to, uh, uh, negotiate the politics of, you know who's fallen out with whom you know for what petty reason and... well that's just because well, that's because just because i you know i believe and i'm not the only person who believes this that like politics are just a very very weak basis for friendship um you know and because uh dissonant politics in general i think attracts a lot of really dysfunctional people um yeah. to anyone listening to this i you know uh if you've got like friends you know who you may not see eye to eye with politically but they've always had your back uh you know uh in every other respect you should hold on to those friends and family members too you know um family ties are very very you know important you know you know 
it, if you've got family members who maybe disagree with you politically, but again, they've always supported you, you've got to keep those relationships strong. Um, you know, and I look back on, uh, you know, my closest friendships, you know, like, uh, over the years, um, I haven't seen eye to eye with my, uh, you know, friends on everything, but they've always had my back and I've always had theirs. Um, you know, those relationships weren't based on, pol- on, on, on political agreement. They were based on, you know, mutual interests in things like music, arts, art, art, literature, stuff like that. Um, that, um, Wow, I completely forgot what the, uh, the question was. But uh, uh, basically, uh, that's kind of that's kind of where I'm 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 coming at, um, you know. And I my perspective is um, if I'm not going to abandon someone or cut ties with them because of over political political disagreements, uh, you know. Well, I've always admired like that spirit of loyalty uh, about you and also like, you know, your willingness to, um, you know, uh, create like some kind of rupture with your own past and like uh, a kind of introspect about like exactly like what you were feeding the world without like throwing your fellow travelers under the bus. You know, I think that's something that's missing a lot, like uh, uh, in terms of like the process of, you know, maturing and like kind of... uh, you know evolving but like still like you know without like the compulsion to uh you know turn against like your your old friends and uh comrades you know yeah i mean i well i don't believe in disavowing i mean well i I hate the term disavow just because it's such a weasel word like problematic um i mean yeah yeah in general i would only like distance myself from someone like if they were actually like you know committing a serious crime or like if they were like hurting someone or like had actually like done something like seriously to hurt me. And I, I'm not talking like insults, like, you know, generally like the red line for me is like, if it's, if you're trying to like deplatform me or like fuck with my income or try to get me fired from my job or like going after my family, like that's the red line. You know, if someone's like just insulting me on the internet, like I can, I can ignore that or whatever. That's stuff like, you know, men can, you know, uh, you know, just ignore or, you know, kiss and make up over, you know, it's, it's not a huge deal. Um, I'm generally very easygoing about these things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, uh, um, is there anyone that like you feel particularly grateful to from your time, uh, you know, not just like, uh, politically, but like your time as like a creative person, uh, as a creator on the internet? And well, there's a well, there's more than a few people, but um, you know, mentioning some names might get that might get them in trouble. Uh, but um, oh, valid. But I do, yeah. a, but I do, do I do owe a um, well, I do owe a great debt to uh, you know Manuel Marrero of uh, Expat for uh, kind of paving the way. Me too. More than anyone else, really, more than anyone else in the world. Uh, I, I always say I would like take a bullet. Kind of paving, <laughs> kind of paving the way, and also for his, uh, you know, great support, you know, behind the scenes, um, and uh, you know, with uh, Terror House and whatnot, uh, in more ways than he'll probably know. And uh, my uh, good friend Calvin West, over the years, for his support, um, you know, Matt Lawrence, um, Terror House's art director, and another uh, great close friend of mine throughout the uh, throughout the years, um, you know. Um, mm-hmm. And, um, you know, 
and I haven't spoken to him in a long time, but, uh, you know, Rush uh, Balazade um, was a great booster of my career um, when I was uh, working for Return of Kings mm-hmm. and also in, in general. Um, even though uh, he and I had taken very different paths, you know, I owe a lot to him for helping me get to where I am today. And there are many other more people that, you know, helped me out that, uh, you know, whose names, are, who I can't mention or who I'm forgetting. Um, but, uh, you know, they know who they are. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, uh, uh, I don't know if I told you, but uh, uh, Roosh is one of like, uh, I think now three people who gave me like uh, outright rejections uh, to an invitation to the podcast. I find his like, uh, his orthodox art arc like very heartening. And I feel like there's pretty much no reason to like doubt his sincerity about it because I don't know, like, you know, the, 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 like, especially like libs will like dismiss this as like, oh, he's like onto his next grift or whatever. And it's like bullshit. Like he would obviously like if he was just like a cynical operator trying to make money, there's a lot more money to be made in, you know, pickup artistry than like, you know, in religious fanaticism. <laughs> but whatever. I, uh, um... Yeah, I don't know. I, I, I guess I want to uh, conclude by uh, uh, bringing up, uh, you know, it's something funny that happened. I mean, it, it, it's kind of funny in retrospect, but, uh, uh, you know, a couple months ago, there was like a small scale death hoax about you. And, uh, you know, I, it was really weird. And in retrospect, it seems like uh, pretty obviously like transparently uh, fake. But, you know, it did, uh, you know because you were like sleeping you were sleeping in that day and you were just like away from the keyboard for a long time you know it was like legitimately like distressing because we you know a lot of us like woke up uh thinking that we were going to live in a world without matt forney like uh, one day like last february yeah um, i mean well i'm not going to go into the full details um it hasn't been a, it hasn't been a great few you know months for me but uh you know I, I i woke up i woke up that day to like a whole bunch of like text messages and missed calls and uh like people asking if i actually you know was dead which was um you know well first off i was pissed at uh you know Brian for mm-hmm. putting that up but uh um, I had no, I, I had actually known that he had done that like the night before because someone had asked me about it and then I sent uh-huh. Brian like a message like what the hell are you doing but then I went to bed and didn't think about it and didn't think that anyone would notice it because uh-huh. like you know Brian is uh, you know no no offense to him he's not uh, you know he's not followed by many people in the lit sphere and he's not he, his tweets don't get that much attention period and he's also like transparently a yeah role. like. But but then um, yeah, I wasn't no, expecting I, I wasn't expecting all that to happen. I wasn't expecting one of my friends to come over. Like you know, but that was what woke me up. One of my friends was uh, hammering on the door. Yeah. No, that was my fault because like people were like like you know Manuel was like texting me, being like, "I'm sorry, I just feel like you know like Calvin said that Ryden would never lie about something like that." And I'm like, "I'm pretty sure that looks like a joke." But but you know, as like it, more time passed and you weren't responding, I felt you know it started to seem more and more serious, and uh, um, and uh, uh, you know, and so that was uh, uh that was partially my fault for uh you know I just called Joe and I'm like, "Yeah, I don't think it's real, but do you mind uh." uh you know, checking in on him just because a lot of people are really worried and it would give us peace of mind. And then, yeah, apparently it culminates in him, uh, you know, banging on your door, uh, <laughs> you know, um, that way. I don't know. I feel like, uh, you know, maybe there was some, uh, you know, there's a silver lining to that. And, you know, sometimes you, 
I feel like you don't know how much people appreciate yeah, I mean, you was, or how I much mean, you appreciate someone else until you, until you, uh, uh, until there's a death hoax and you, uh, you know, you're like, uh, yeah, it was, it was, kind of, it was, uh, it was genuinely question. appreciated, uh, you and everyone else because, um, it's, you know, at the time I, it was, I was going through a pretty, pretty dark period. Um, you know, and, um, uh, and I'm still to a certain extent picking up the pieces. Um, but knowing how right. every much everyone cared that much was actually really, really heartening. Oh, that's wonderful. And, uh, uh, you know, I, I guess you, you've done like so much too. like the, you have so much to be proud of. I feel like you've, you know, you've, uh, you've established Terror House as like a player, like a pretty significant player in the alt lit scene. And you also like your weight loss, like, uh, you know, you've talked about this before you've, uh, you, you have like a, a tweet thread about how, uh, um, about like your weight loss journey and it's really like incredible like you know uh and i don't know i i congratulate you like uh sincerely on that i remember uh you know the first thing that uh uh that joe said uh you know not my not uh joe uh, the joe that lives in new york she was just like like wow like forney's looking trim like uh the first time that i met you and uh and you know, I just feel like there's so much, uh, so much, you know, that you've accomplished. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, to be thanks. Grateful. I mean, that 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 also came out of the period of self reflection that spawned Sex Pest. Um, that was, uh, I mean, you know, most people know what I look like. You know, they know I've been fat for most of my life, and it was something that um, uh, I realized I had to work on for matters of. Uh, a self confidence, but also I was actually seriously worried about my health. Um, about a year and a half ago, yeah. I uh, went on a uh, I went a, a short trip to uh, El Salvador, um, where um, uh, I got seriously sick with. Um, it may have been COVID. It may not have been COVID. I'm actually not sure because um, um, I had COVID like symptoms where like I was. Um, by the time I came back, um, I could not breathe. Like merely walking for five minutes i would get so exhausted i would have to sit down you know i was coughing constantly i was tired all the time um but when i got back here and i went to a doctor um the friend who was with me who was translating um like <clears throat> well the first thing he had the doctor asked me is if i was vaccinated and my friend like snapped that and was like treat this as if it, as if covid didn't exist and uh you know the doctor prescribed me antibiotics uh, which to my knowledge, has never been used to treat COVID anywhere. And the antibiotics worked. Uh, I was more or less back to normal in uh, about a week. Um, but by that point, like, I had gotten really fat. I was, uh, I weighed about 270 pounds, which uh, I weighed, I'm, I, I'm about five foot ten, so that's, like, really, really obese. Um, mm -hmm. And I started having heart palpitations, which is bad. That's really bad. Um, so about the time I, I got back, I around uh march of that year i about i spent about a month traveling um this is related to uh my uh, getting my mexican residency permit and i also went to new york city to uh attend one of the expat presses events um i came back i saw that i had lost about 20 pounds from uh, walking around and i decided you know what i'm gonna lose i'm gonna i'm gonna see if i can lose about another hundred pounds um get down to say 170 which would be like normal weight for my uh height and um 
by the end of the year, I had just narrowly missed it. Um, I was at 176 pounds, which is about three pounds over the um, the minimum BMI. Uh, but that was still a pretty big deal. Um, it's been beneficial in a lot of other ways. The heart palpitations stopped for number one. You know, I obviously look a lot better. Everyone has commented on it. Um, I generally feel a lot healthier. Um, it has obviously caused some problems in terms of uh, none of my clothes fitting anymore. Um, but, you know, that's a good problem to have. Well, the trench coat fits. Oh, like yeah. Always, exactly. The trench coat fits like it always, like it was always well, meant to. I actually was able to start wearing that once I, again, once I lost weight. That thing has uh, been in the closet for a very, very long time. Uh -huh. Um. I guess, you know, you've talked to me a little bit before about, you know, your process of like self-discovery and kind of like moral and uh, personal introspection that, you know, someone who was very uh, crucial to that was uh, Elizabeth Aldrich or Eris, uh, as she's known by her pen name. And, uh, you know, I think I've mentioned this to you, but, you know, I had an intention at one point to bring her on this podcast because uh, because her writing was very interesting. And, uh, you know, I thought that she was definitely one of the gems to come out of the expat press like terror house uh you know expanded universe um i don't know if you would if you're not a you know if you're not opposed to talking about it since uh since you know i know it's very personal but of course well i guess like uh you know of course she died uh last summer um but uh i remember when we, when i was visiting you told me some really interesting things about her you know her role in your life recently and uh yeah i mean yeah i mean I've, I've talked or... i've talked a bit about it publicly so um yeah lizzie and i were uh were close i mean not the closest of her people obviously knew her better than i did and uh so i don't want to overstate it but she did have a very big uh influence in my life and um you know very big influence in the uh writing of uh of uh sex pest um yeah, she was uh, she was an occasional contributor to Terror House, and uh, we had uh, talked online pretty frequently uh, before meeting in person. Um, uh, she uh, actually, when she first started hitting me up, um, it was uh, actually related to the uh, semi-related to the whole e-drama thing that uh, inspired the uh, the draft that would become Sex Pest. She was uh, sending me uh, cybersecurity tips related to uh, something that Brian was doing right before he got banned from Twitter, um, which was kind of funny. Um, she also proclaimed that uh, she was going to sexually harass me and then sent me some nudes. Um, she then later insisted that uh, <clears throat> she put, uh, you know, she she sent me like a couple of top of videos of herself, uh, like speaking topless, like like her, like there was no nudity in them. Like it was just her like, uh, uh the shoulders up um and i commented like uh like several hours later it's like after i watched them like i couldn't open them because i was like at a restaurant and i didn't want like someone seeing them it was like yeah sorry i did sorry i took so long to respond like i was at like a restaurant like you know some family was next to me and i didn't want them to see me looking at a naked woman and she's like oh my god i'm so sorry but then she later insisted on putting that uh in her terror house bio once that Matt filmed topless <laughs> videos while he was at yeah. a family restaurant in Albania. But yeah, she was, yeah. Uh, she was, uh, she was something, but um, basically the, uh, you know, the influence she had on me was like, you know, she was very open about, uh, you know, her struggles with uh, borderline personality disorder and both, uh, you know, 
the discussions we had about it and uh, sort of, you know, her role in my life kind of, uh, you know, uh, sort of got me to thinking about my own personality and uh, my past relationships with women. A lot of Sex Pest uh, is inspired by my past relationships uh, with uh, with women and mm-hmm. more or less how dysfunctional they were. Um, and what I realized was, um, well, these patterns keep happening again and again. I keep getting involved with the same type of woman again and again. Um, there's clearly something wrong with me if this keeps happening over and over. Um, you know, I'm attracted to the same type of woman. Mm-hmm. Uh, I keep making the same types of mistakes. Um, and the last time I was involved with a uh, uh, a very obviously unstable borderline, you know, after it happened, I was talking to myself, well, this is never going to happen again. I've learned my lesson. This was right before I left the country. Um, and I didn't encounter another woman like that for several years. But what actually happened was that I didn't learn my lesson. It's just that I was in a uh, countries like Hungary and Georgia where women on that level of crazy just simply don't exist. You can't get away with the level of um, Mm -hmm. crazy that uh, uh, women are capable of in a place like the U S in a country like Hungary and Georgia, because they're, you know, they're poor, you know, things are a little more, you know, I guess, patriarchal if you want to use that term you know women don't have as much freedom to be you know crazy or abusive as they are in places like that so it wasn't so much so it wasn't so much that i learned my lesson i just didn't have access to the things that were you know destroying me you know mentally and spiritually um but as soon as i came back to the u.s i was engaging in the things that i was engaging in all my old vices i also you know started binge drinking again um uh And these things are also available in Mexico, but like a year in Mexico, you know, I was uh, kind of uh, for the first year in Mexico in 2021, like I had just gotten that new job and I was really just kind of focusing on the job and, you know, building a terror house and I wasn't really partying. But in 2022 is when I started cutting loose again. So I had to kind of just deconstruct my own behavior. Um, Her role in that was I realized... um, the reason that I've been behaving like this and the reason why my relationships with women were following this pattern was because I had very deep rooted self-esteem issues. Um, you know, I was very insecure about my writing. I was very insecure about my accomplishments. Um, I was insecure about the way I looked, you know, that fed into my desire to lose weight. Um, and the reason I kept ending up in relationships with women who you know, with borderlines is because that's the kind of uh, women, a woman that uh, would be attracted to someone like that. Um, borderlines, their whole thing is like, you know, constantly gassing you up, telling you how wonderful they are, you are, you know, preying on your insecurities, remolding their personalities to what you find appealing, uh, you know, and that feels incredibly, and, and that feels incredibly good, just as someone constantly buttering you up. Though I've had, I've had relations, I've had, you know, a number of relationships like that. And the downside of it is that these women are generally unstable. You know, they they split. You know, you know, they go from absolutely loving you to hating you. You know, they almost always tend to have severe drug or alcohol issues. Um, you know, they'll withdraw their affection at, at the drop, uh, drop of a hat to control you. Um, it's 
it's a constant roller coaster of affect and uh, and and abuse. It's 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 like being it's like being addicted to a drug. Basically, that was something a friend of mine explained to me. Like being in a relationship with a borderline woman is like being hooked on a drug, and when it ends, you know, it's almost like going through withdrawal. Um, and sort of going going through this reflection process, you know, was a very big self awareness moment for me. Um, her, you know, Lizzie's role in this was helping me realize why I've been doing this my entire life. Um, the big, uh, you know, kind of, uh, you know, disappointment for me was, uh, you know, I was, you know, obviously very sad when she died, but I never got the chance to tell her any of this. Uh, you know, I didn't really talk to her much after we, you know, <clears throat> as I mentioned um, in the uh, Misery uh, uh, Loves Company uh, memorial reading for after she died, uh, you know, the way we ended up meeting in person was like just incredibly random. You know, it was almost like an act of God type thing. Um, because um, I was going to the expat event, uh, uh, the Ridgewood event uh, with uh, Calvin Westra um, in March of last year, but I hadn't told anyone uh, aside from Manuel and Calvin himself um, that I was going. Uh, a few days beforehand, uh, Lizzie tweets something. Uh, I forgot what she tweeted exactly, but I like replied to her, and then she DMs me like a few hours later, saying that she was planning, considering go, planning on going to the to the to the expat event. Um, I mentioned, oh, I'm I'm going to that too, and there was no reason for her to bring that up or DM me. She tells me before she tells Manuel or anyone else. Um, and then my Friday night opens up because uh, none of my other friends were available to hang out then. So I, you know, hit her up and was like, "Hey, you want to go get dinner?" And sure, yeah. So that was that was very strange. But yeah, I mean, you know, the book is going to be uh, well. It's going to be dedicated to her, and it's going to be dedicated to someone else who also died around the same time and had a uh, very positive influence on the book and my life in general. But yeah, she was, uh, you know, yeah. I'm going to miss her. You know, you uh, mentioned this before, and then you, uh, it kind of came up again that you feel like, uh, you know, the the subject of your upcoming book has kind of shifted from being about, like, your feeling of rootlessness and, uh, uh, you know, like, the, the lifestyle that you've adopted to being about, like, your relationships with women. But I guess in my mind, like, these two things are very uh, uh, um, interconnected in that, uh, um, you know, there's a lot of... Uh, common ground that kind of uh, uh, relates to both of them. Of course, you know, from what I know of you and like your current lifestyle, like you seem like very, uh, uh, like you're not prioritizing uh, your relationships with women at this time in your life, that you're more or less, uh, uh, you know, on your journey of like self-awareness and, um, and that, you know, come whatever may, like that's not really uh, something that you're actively pursuing. Uh, or uh, unless I'm mistaken, but, uh, um, so, well, I don't yeah. know. Do you see what I'm getting at? Like, as far as like the, these two things kind of being like, uh, interlinked that, you know, uh, I think it was John Cheever said like everyone travels with their own, uh, and obviously that's, uh, been a part of That's been a theme in your work in the past. Uh, uh, you know, as, as the old heads will remember, but, uh, um, but you know, that there is like a lot of, uh, a common, you know, that these two things are very, uh, 
Yeah, I mean, there might be a little bit of insect pest. I mean, uh, my general writing process, uh, well, my writing process of this book has been, uh, there's like a lot of like fragments and flashes um, that got spun off uh, from the book because uh, if I write something down that I think is good but doesn't fit thematically in the book, I'll just put it in a separate file and set it aside. And uh, enough of those started gelling. Uh, like I wrote a large volume of material after uh, Lizzie passed away in uh, uh, last summer um, that uh, ended up sort of uh, gelling into a separate uh, no novel that uh, after Sex Pest is complete, I'm going to uh, uh, start, uh, you know, really fleshing out and, uh, you know, going full bore into. Um um, but when it comes to it, when it comes to um, writing, like I said, I tend to start from an autofictive base, but I generally also tend to work from uh, incidents and things that have happened that are like several that I'm several years removed from. I generally don't write about things in the recent past because I don't have the ability to be objective about those. Uh, once several years have passed and something has happened to me, I can sort of look back at it, back on it, and be like, "Oh, okay, I was being an idiot here. I was being uh, a jerk here. Um, okay, this was funny." Um, if I write about something, if something has happened to me, I may write about it in the sense that, like, oh, "Okay, I should jot this down just so I remember what happened." But like. In terms of literary writing, something that I want to get published, um, anything I write about in the like, the immediate aftermath isn't going to be very good. It's going to be stinged by it's going to be tainted by sentimentality or anger, depending on mm -hmm. what exactly happened. Uh, right. With the sentiments that go went, went to went to Sex Pest, um, you know, it came out of a period of self reflection, but like the specific incidents that you know inspired it are culled from things that happened as you know. Far um, as far back as over a decade ago to as recently as you know six seven years ago, um, the the novella will have a you know by the time I that's not going to be done for like a while like uh, the 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 novel I imagine imagine won't have a complete draft until maybe twenty twenty five but. That would probably cover more recent, uh, be inspired by more recent events in my life. Mm -hmm. It makes uh, it makes perfect sense to me. Um, I, I think that's about it as far as I'm concerned. Uh, I, I know I want to give you the opportunity to plug any uh, uh, any upcoming projects that may be in the works. Um, but uh, yeah, and do you have any uh, final remarks or anything you want to get at before? Uh, before we go to the uh, housekeeping stuff of you know plugging your, your um, I think that covers pretty much uh, pretty much everything. I mean, um, you know, if you want to, uh, well, for housekeeping, obviously, you know, check out uh, Terror House Press. Um, you know, check uh, check out Terror House Magazine. All the links will presumably be in the description of this podcast. Um, you know where to find it: terrorhousepress.com. Check out all of our books; they're available on Amazon and our website and. Every other bookseller, um, check out our latest book, um, Hypnagogia. Um, 
or hypnagogia. I am not sure how that's pronounced, but it is spelled H-Y-P-N-O-G-O-G-I-A. It is a fantastic novel blending prose and poetry about a uh, child actress who starts experiencing uh, dreams that are increasingly violent involving a uh, student studying a cult uh, related to uh, involving mysterious disappearances. It's a really fantastic uh, multi-layered narrative. Um, and it's all of our books are great this is a this is a particularly special special novel um particularly proud that uh, we were able to publish this one uh hypnagogia hypnagogia why am i hypnagogia just go check it out cool well uh also, uh, I heard a rumor. Uh, I heard a rumor circulating that uh, that you're going to relaunch Terror House Radio. Soon. Yeah, a a a, a um, rumor from uh, well, rumors. Yes, rumor. Terror House Radio will be returning. With uh, I heard a rumor that it would involve uh, some guy named Nick. Wow, that's my name. What a yeah. weird coincidence. <laughs> But yeah, uh, looking forward to starting that, and uh, yeah, everyone, uh, everyone, check out Terror House Press. Everyone, read uh, my favorite Terror House story, Hitler's Genders. Um, no, actually, my favorite. Uh, I, I think my favorite thing you've ever published uh, that I'm aware of is uh, Content Moderator by uh, Jesus's Victory. Oh, that's a good one. That's a good one. With all that said, uh, uh, I thank you so much for coming on. I uh, I'm very grateful to know you and to have you in my life and for you know all of uh, all of the work you're doing for some kind of like creative renewal and to foster uh you know life-affirming oh, thanks art. thanks for having thanks for having me on again Viajera que vas 
por cielo y por mar Dejando en los corazones Latir de pasión, vibrar de canción Y luego mil decepciones A mí me tocó quererte también Besarte y después perderte Dios quiera que al fin te canses de andar Y entonces quieras quedarte No sé qué será sin verte No sé qué venderá después No sé si podré olvidarte no sé si me moriré Mi luna y mi sol irán tras de ti Unidos con mis canciones Diciéndote ven, regresa otra vez No rompas más corazones